0: Hi Julia. Hi Emma. What's up?
1: You know, it's the last day of spring break right now, which is a little sad.
0: Yeah, this is our last spring break ever. I'm honestly really upset.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this week went by so fast.
0: Yeah. Uh you were in Savannah, right?
1: Yeah, down in Georgia. It was really nice. It was sunny and I was with a group of wonderful babes um and we ate really good food we went to the beach we went on some tours uh drank some fancy drinks it was very fun and you were here but it sounds like you had a nice staycation
0: yes i had a staycation uh over break i did not go home and see my family much to their chagrin i stayed here with my best friend and we made some art we did some work i applied to some jobs i applied Mm -hmm. to three jobs over this break so pretty exciting yeah
1: so should we get into it yeah let's do it so today on babe stock money we will be talking about ecological economics
0: Okay, so ecological economics uh even though the ideas of ecological economics can be traced back to as early as 1926 with the radio chemist f.a Sadi, uh the first organizations like the real beginnings of the school as we know today were in the 80s um and then by i think it was 82 that there was the first meetings began and by 89 There was an International Society for Ecological Economics, which was founded by Robert Costanza, who's actually someone we're going to talk about a lot in this episode. So, interestingly enough, Robert Costanza, in 1997, published an article that sort of brought ecological economics to the forefront and talked about how to value the actual Earth, the global system, and the services that are related to that and he came up with this number 33 trillion dollars which is huge and at the time was 1.8 times global gdp reading he does not discuss ecological economics so we don't have a one sentence summary for you but i'll say that i think the best thing that i can do to summarize this school is to say that what's important to ecological economists is that we conserve our natural resources and specifically that we see things like pollution and things that we're doing to affect the environment not as externalities which is how neoclassical economics would qualify them, but really as part of the system. For example, in neoclassical economics, something like carbon pollution, it's not calculated anywhere. With ecological economics, that number would be calculated and it would factor into the numbers of the production of that company.
1: So we as Emma said, don't have a one-liner um, from the Chang reading, which is what we usually do in our show. But um, Malt Faber, who is an ecological economist, does have a pretty good one-liner. Maybe not quite as catchy as the way Chang would put it, but it says, ecological economics is defined by its focus on nature, justice, and time.
0: Yeah, and so when I read that quote um, I also saw that it was talking about some of the major issues that Faber saw in ecological economics was um, intergenerational equity, calculating irreversible environmental change, uncertainty of long-term outcomes, which is something that I think we've talked about a little bit on the show, but that neoclassical sort of shies away from embracing the unknown and embracing uncertainty, which we think is a problem because it presents this vision that neoclassical knows what's going to happen when that's not really the reality and then sustainable development, um, which is obviously going to be a really big focus of ecological economics.
1: Yeah. And, um, one other thing I want to say while we're on this topic, is just an interesting thing about ecological economics is that it's not, I mean, it obviously has this focus of the environment, but it's meant to be applicable in a, in a more general way and that i think the argument here is sort of that the environment is so important and so important to the economy because that's where the economy is derived from if you like really think back to like where do we get all the materials to make stuff and to like increase our gdp it's all along the way somewhere going back in time from the environment um so anyway i think because of that ecological can be applicable to people who aren't necessarily interested in the environment because they're one in the same in a sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that was the sense that I got as I was researching this school was that the founders... Although they, a lot of them, and we should mention that this is one of the most interdisciplinary schools that we're going to talk about, the truth is that ecological economists, they're not just economists and they're not just ecologists. They really are a mixture between the two, whereas with a lot of other schools, it's more so economists that have specific interests in different things. This really is an interdisciplinary field. But I will say that I think they made a really serious point of explaining that while they are interested in the environment and they do care about the environment, what they're fighting for here is a sustainable earth. It's not about, it's, it's, it's about what's best for everyone. They truly believe that this is the only path to a sustainable life on this planet. Mm -hmm.
1: So in the reading that we do in our Exco, there's this very helpful chart and it goes over the key terms, key conceptual issues is what they call them. And then talks about how the neoclassical economist would look at it and how the ecological economist would look at it. So Emma was talking before about uncertainty and for uncertainty on this chart, the neoclassical economist thinks of it as reduce uncertainty to risk, market outcome focused to decision making. So basically, you're thinking about all of your decisions based on this market framework of supply and demand. There's equilibrium. It's very like we know it's going to happen because markets have predictable behavior. Right. And as Emma was saying before... That's not totally the case. And the way the ecological economists will look at it is the sort of like one-liner here is precautionary principle to deal with pure uncertainty, process-oriented, co-evolutionary focus to decision-making. Okay, so those are just sort of bullet points, obviously not full sentences. But the idea here is that there's more going on that factors into our decision-making and therefore uncertainty is real. And we need to just accept that ecological economists have a more in our opinion at least a more reasonable way of discussing uncertainty in a more realistic way.
0: Yeah and obviously we talk about these things uh, and it's it's true that it is hard to apply that when you're sitting in a mathematical economics class, there is no way to quantify uncertainty and that's why neoclassical shies away from it and we understand this but I think that the ecological economists point and our point as well is just that we should be keeping that in mind and that we need to, think about economics in a different way altogether.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, So every week so far, we have talked about our good friend, Homo economicus, also known as our frenemy. So I just want to quickly say how that fits in here. And I think the ecological perspective is pretty similar to some of the other schools we've looked at in terms of being more socially oriented and not viewing individuals as these sort of like islands, uh, yeah, isolated, personal decision making. Yeah, exactly. Um, So again, going back to this chart that I keep going back to from the reading from our class, it says... For the conceptual issue, it says the rational actor. Under neoclassical, it says individual consumers and firms at the center of analysis. Okay, so you can see there, it's that isolationist view of let's just look at the people, let's look at the firms, let's not think about the fact that, you know, Amazon can't exist without FedEx. Or I I mean, I think they might actually have their own mailing system, so maybe that's (laughs) a bad example. But you get the idea that many companies couldn't exist without FedEx, et cetera, et cetera. And people live in families and other social settings, you know. Emma and I both live with roommates. Right. And that's a...
0: (laughs) My life is highly affected by the actions of my roommates.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, Ecological says, and again, these are sort of more bullet points, analyze humans as social actors, consumers versus citizens. So here what they're saying is that, again, humans interact, we're social beings, people around us have effects on us. I think they're kind of making the claim that neoclassical, when they talk about individuals, are really just talking about consumers mm-hmm. and people talk talking about people as consumers. And there's more to a person role in the economy. And if you view people as citizens versus consumers, then you start to see all these other factors more clearly. Yeah. And that even still, even if you are going to view someone as a consumer... That their consumption is going to be affected by things and isn't going to be perfectly rational. Right. So I think that might be sort of its own point, but I just wanted to make sure we talked about Homo economicus here. Oh, yeah, we could not
0: leave out our favorite guy. things, policy changes to economics as we know it, that ecological economists call for is this switch from cost-benefit analysis, which you may have heard of. It's what most economists use to sort of decide how expensive something's going to be and whether it's worth taking on that project and switching it into something called positional analysis. Now, positional analysis is another example of sort of a pluralistic view of how to measure something. The definition that we found online says that the purpose of positional analysis is to illuminate a decision or situation in a many sided way with respect to possible relevant ideological orientations, alternatives, and consequences. So what this is just saying is you need to have a more dynamic view of something than just how much it costs in dollars, and how much you make back in dollars. There are other ways that taking on an investment project affects a person. So I think that that's a pretty interesting one. And then the other policy implication that we wanted to talk about was, I am sure that a lot of you have heard of GDP. It stands for gross domestic product. And it is a very, very general and zoomed out measure of how the economy is doing.
1: Yeah. And so it measures the economy on the whole, and then you have to sort of supplement it with these other economic indicators. So you have the Gini index, or Gini coefficients, which are basically this way of measuring how equal a society is. If you look at the U.S., we have a very large GDP, and you can see the growth in the GDP over the years, and if you look at it that way, you're going to say, the U.S. economy is doing really well. Right. But if you go to our Gini coefficient, you'll see that it's very unequal, So yes, we are getting richer, but it's that 1% that's getting richer, while people on the other end of the spectrum are getting poorer, or at least in relative terms, getting poorer.
0: Yeah, and aside that the Gini coefficient is actually an incredibly interesting indicator that maybe we'll go into in another episode soon, but something worth looking up, it measures income inequality in a society. So anyway, ecological economists, don't believe in using GDP. They believe in using something different and it's called the genuine progress indicator or GPI. And the GPI is sort of a way to measure what GDP measures, but in a more socially and environmentally friendly way. Specifically, this would be done through including factors like when the poverty rate increases, GPI would decrease or factoring in environmental and carbon footprints that businesses produce. Uh, so depletion of resources, pollution, all of those things would be counted. And essentially what this is trying to do is account for the costs borne by society for pollution and poverty and other things that are considered externalities in neoclassical that they sort of take a different view of and consider part of the system in ecological economics. So when we look at GDP, which, as Julia said, has kept growing Pretty significantly for the last, uh, years, even when there was the Great Recession, I don't think that GDP went down by a very significant number compared to the growth that we've experienced, uh, in the last 50 or 100 years even. But GPI actually peaked in 1978, which makes a lot of sense because I think that's, uh, sort of close to when we started to realize the kind of damage that we were actually doing to our natural res- resources on this, on this planet.
1: Yeah, and so the argument there is that we're actually making ourselves poorer and not richer, and this is actually something that is sort of considered by certain environmental economists. I don't want to discount their work here, but I think that what's interesting there is that there are these environmental economists who have gone out and they've valued rainforests and things that we're destroying, and they've said, these rainforests are worth millions of dollars, billions of dollars, we need to be careful here. But this, because it's such a holistic way of looking at the environment— I think were it to be mainstream would have a much bigger impact and be much more important and um, successful in terms of ensuring that we do have a sustainable planet, which again, you can't separate from the economy. Right. Um, And I, I maybe have said this before, but before I was a religion major, I was actually planning to double major with economics and environmental studies. And I used to work in the phoning room calling alumni of Oberlin and... I would call people and they'd always be like, "What are, what's your major? And I would say environmental studies and economics double major. Often people would be like, that doesn't make sense. Those two things don't go together. Right. They're the total opposite of each other. And I think that what's so cool and important about ecological is it's saying we need to put these together or we're basically screwed. Right. And that's what neoclassical has tried to do by making environmental economics more important. But it's just not doing it in a sufficient way. Yeah,
0: and I think that, I think to me the biggest, I mean, this is really the the core of this school, but making those externalities not technically be externalities anymore, that is the only way that we'll ever like truly value the environment the way that we value anything else in the economy. There's just, we'll never be able to get there without it.
1: No, oh, yeah, completely. And I think what a neoclassical environmental economist would do would be to internalize externalities. That's what you do to deal with these problems. Right. Like if you are doing a model, like a basic economic model of a company that's making some product and producing some sort of pollution that goes into the water and then that affects a fisherman, then what you're trying to do is you're trying to put those concerns into the model. And so then it basically just changes what the demand is. Right. Because people say like, Oh, this is the social cost. Right. Um, versus just looking at the co- the like straight-up cost, which is what the company will look at.
0: Yeah, and just to clarify, I think that we've been talking about externalities pretty much only as pollution in this episode, but the, there are other things that can be externalities that have nothing to do with the environment. Mm-hmm. The housing bubble was also considered an externality, so there is precedent for internalizing those sorts of externalities, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not always about the environment to go on.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and so I think that what ecological tries to do in a sense what they're kind of doing is they're saying like we're not going to treat these as externalities and then later internalize them they're going to say we're going to internalize them from the start right so like when you think about um GPI versus GDP it's saying we need to put these things into the model from the start
0: right so our model needs to account for them rather than reacting we need to be more active about these things
1: yeah also this is a little bit of a tangent but something that is really interesting is that economics is a pretty new field. I was listening to a Planet Money podcast recently where they were talking about that. They were talking about how GDP was invented like around the time of the Great Depression because mm-hmm. everybody was like, well, I don't know what happened here, but all of a sudden all these people are Not destitute <laughs> and unemployed. And yeah, exactly. And so they created GDP. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, that it's come to take over mm-hmm. our view of economics, but that it didn't even exist 100 years ago. point is that I think there is something sort of exciting there, just to say, if that took hold the way it has, maybe there is room for something like GPI.
0: Totally. And that's what I was going to say, is that we always like to sort of cover these counterpoints and we'll readily admit that GPI is inherently more subjective of an indicator than GDP. Yeah. But I would argue that that was probably the same argument that was being made by people when GDP originated in the first place. I mean, what counts in GDP, although it is based on production, what gets counts as production and what doesn't and what columns they get counted in, that's all subjective as well. So totally. I think we know that economics as a social science will also always have some level of subjectivity to it. We just have to figure out where our priorities lie. Completely. Robert Costanza and his three main goals that he sort of postulated are the essence of what ecological economics is trying to achieve. And one of those goals was fair distribution. So when I was reading this article with Robert Costanza that was sort of talking about this and where he lays out these three goals, he has this quote where he's talking about how there's research to show that unequal societies are actually less productive because they spend more energy trying to maintain the gap. And we know that income inequality is a huge issue in our country right now, something that's on a lot of people's minds. And although it's faded from the public eye since Occupy Wall Street and the 2008 financial crisis, I think that it's still something really important that we need to talk about. Um, And I think that Robert Costanza is making a great point here with this idea that societies that are more unequal are less productive because they're spending energy trying to maintain the gap. And that sort of lines up with something that we saw in behavioralists, which for a refresher for anyone who didn't listen to that episode, the behavioralist school of economics is a school of economic thought that is based on psychology and tries to sort of mix the properties of psychology and properties of the way that we understand the human mind to work with economics and economic preferences. So one of the preferences that we talked about in our episode on Behavioralist was this idea of fairness and how fairness is more important to people, sometimes even than value or money itself. So I found this study. Uh, This study was done by Golnaz Tabibnia, and it's called The Sunny Side of Fairness. Preference for Fairness Activates Rewards Circuitry. So basically in this study, they play this ultimatum game where people are given a pot of money to split and one person is in charge of giving a proposal to the other person about how they're going to split the money and the person can either accept that proposal or they can say no and if they say no no one gets any money and they found that when people felt that the line had been crossed that the distribution was unfair to a certain extent then they would give up the money altogether and that they truly did value fairness over getting any money at all and that if it was going to be an 80/20 split it wasn't even worth it to get the $20 to them. So, I don't know, what do you think about that, Julia? That really struck me.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I think if you think about it from the neoclassical perspective, that person is being completely irrational. Right. Why would you give up $20? Right. You're still better off than you were before. Right. And that kind of reminds me um I keep talking about planet money, but I was listening to another <laughs> We love planet money. We do. Um I was listening to another Planet Money episode recently that was about love. And it was very entertaining, but there's this one moment where it's like, no, <laughs> this is wrong. It was basically this economist who's created this a column that is a love advice column but uses economics to like answer the questions. Oh, and he talked about he actually did talk about behavioralist economics, which I thought was cool. But anyway, this boy called in and he was like, I've never been on a date, never kissed a girl. I'm in high school, and my senior prom is coming up. Should I ask this girl that I think is cute to prom? Mm-hmm. And the guy was like, yeah, because if you don't, you won't be any worse off. Like, if she rejects you, you won't be any worse off before, because before you didn't have a date, and you still won't have a date. But that's obviously not how it's going to feel. Right, like,
0: that's a nice thought, but rejection actually is something that costs you something.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, I know we've gone on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think that that is what's so key here
0: yeah. is
1: to think about how like neoclassical just can oversimplify things in a way that's just not accurate to how humans actually are. Also, I'll let Emma get back to the study in a second, but I just wanted to bring up here because I think it's relevant that ecological does take into consideration a fair amount of behavioral type ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, So like discounting is this economic concept where neoclassical economists think of it as They call it a straight-line discounting of future costs and benefits. And so it's basically this idea that how much people value something based on whether you're getting it now or in the future.
0: Oh, yeah. I think we talked about this during the Behavioralist episode.
1: Yeah, we did. So basically it's like the idea that a neoclassical economist would be like, okay, this is going to be worth the same to you tomorrow as it is today. When in reality... If you're not going to receive it till tomorrow, it's actually going to matter less to you. Right. And so within ecological economics, they say, and I'm reading this from the article that we use in the Exco, it says, quote, recognizes the difference between individual and social valuation of the future. Hyperbolic discounting. So hyperbolic discounting is that behavioral list idea that I'm just, I was just talking about how we like discount things that are happening in the future In a way, we view them as being much less valuable. So you're like, oh, I'm going to smoke this cigarette now because me getting cancer from smoking that cigarette is not going to happen for a long time. And so it doesn't matter to me.
0: Right. Yeah. That can describe a lot of human behavior.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so the other important thing there is that there's a difference between how individuals and society values the future. So, you know, we're going to maybe continue to take a plane home because we're like, that's only going to add so much to the environment. But if everybody's thinking that way, then that has this big cost on society.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I'm actually done with my econ major at Overland and I'm not taking any courses in the department right now. But Emma, I know you're taking your seminar right now. Um, yeah, so I'm just kind of curious, how is that? Like, how does being a woman in um, a seminar differ from being a woman in a lecture? What's up with that?
0: I think it's really interesting. So just to give some background um, at Oberlin College, I'm not sure how it works at other colleges actually, but you have to take a certain number of different level classes and then the final requirement is you take a seminar which is different from any other economics course that you would take. It's it's not a math class or a lecturing class as Julie alluded to. It's a sit-down class with 10 people, and you read scientific articles that are based on economics, and you discuss them and sort of, you know, get at a point. And I'm taking a seminar on financial crises, which admittedly, Julia, I thought was a financial crisis 2008 edition type thing, and it's not. We actually started in 1870, I want to say, maybe earlier than that. So, it's been interesting. It's not quite what I expected, but it is really interesting. It's definitely very finance-driven, which isn't quite uh, up my alley. But I think for me, in terms of being a woman in this class, what has stood out to me the most is how much I'm willing to ask questions. So, Hmm. we do this thing in my class, which is a little weird, where the students basically teach the readings each week, and we, yeah. we switch off, but at the beginning of class every day, it's a two-hour class in the evenings, and a, stu- a student or two or three will present the readings, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we don't really know what's going on in these readings any more than the next student in class, whether we're presenting it or not, a lot of the time the person presenting can't really bring much clarity to it, they can sort of only summarize the reading which is great, and it's good to do that in class. But being someone who does not have a huge background in finance, taking a seminar on financial crises,
1: I have a lot of questions about the technical terms in the articles.
0: And I find that I am the only one in the class willing to ask.
1: It's really interesting. I think I think it's interesting because I feel like I've heard things about how men are more more willing to ask questions. But also I could see how it could go the other way of like men being sort of confident in themselves, and not wanting to, like, sort of wanting to keep up the facade that they know what's up.
0: Yeah, exactly. I feel like, um, I'm not sure if we've talked about this on class before, or on the podcast before, but when Julia and I met, we were in macroeconomics, which I think emotionally and academically pretty much in every way you could imagine. But specifically, I think as being a woman in economics was the most challenging course that I took. Um And in that class, I found that there was a similar vibe where it felt like no one really understood, but no one was willing to ask what was going on. And I think more than anything, that's a flaw in economics as a, as a major and as a discipline that it doesn't Always encourage people to express their own uncertainty as we were talking about earlier on the episode.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: but I do find, I think, in my opinion, that women are more likely to sort of raise their hand and ask. And I wonder if that's because as a woman in economics, you have to be a little bit fiercer. And you have to sort of be willing to stand up for yourself and say, hey, you can, you know, you can all think I'm an idiot for asking that question. But when the test comes around, I'm going to know the answer. And if I didn't ask the question, I wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what I attribute that to. And maybe it's just about me as a person and not necessarily about me as a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's something that I've really noticed.
1: Yeah, because that's definitely a slippery slope of like, we needed to talk about these things and think about these things. But like, at what point are the things happening to us just because they're happening versus, like, they're happening to us specifically because we are women.
0: Right. Yeah. And and also I think there's this aspect of economics as a discipline. Obviously, this entire podcast so far has been dedicated sort of to, on some level, criticizing mainstream economics. It is. Uh, it has a lot of problems, and those problems spill over into academia and the way that it's taught. And it's not just in a way that is – you know separated based on whether you're a man or a woman there are a lot of problems with the discipline in my opinion that everyone experiences no matter what you know how you identify
1: yeah totally i mean and i also think that some of the problems that we've talked about here are more universal than we realize um and i think i mean i think in at a place like oberlin if you're gonna major in something like CAS or something like i'm sure there are still issues there but like the whole point of that major is to sort of P woke, yeah, <laughs> or just, something just like that. Just to
0: clarify for our listeners, CAS is Comparative American oh. Studies. Yeah, thank you. uh How would you describe that? I don't even um, know how to put it. I don't.
1: I don't really know like the full scope of what the major is like, um but I think it's pretty interdisciplinary. And you're supposed to sort of like graduate if you if you major in that, you're supposed to graduate with a sort of like. Um, diverse understanding of what it's like to be an American because it, it is such right. a melting pot in a diverse right. country to say that, like, okay, like white, male, straight, cis, all those things, people that identify that way, um, there's this sort of idea in certain portrayals of America that that's America or right. that's an American. When, of course, that's not true. Americans can look so American many different ways. ways. Yeah, and so I think it's sort of trying to teach you that. But my point is that if you are choosing to major in this or even just take a class in CAS, people around you are going to be aware of these things and thinking about these things and concerned about them, and they're going to bring that with them to the table. People will say things in those types of classes like, I can only speak from my own experience, but this is what I think. People preface things. People are very conscious and careful of what they say. And you know I'm sure there are plenty of people who would hear this podcast and say, like, oh, that PC culture, those right. sensitive kids. But I think it's really important. And I think that that we are – like, if you start to talk to people about, like, the kind of issues that we know we're going to face um, if we pursue, like, continue to pursue economics after Oberlin, where, like, we're going to deal with – men with fragile masculinity who aren't going to want to accept our intelligence as, like, legitimate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, last week, actually, uh, we – or was it two weeks ago? We went to Professor Beers, which is a Mm -hmm. tradition at Oberlin where the place where we hold concerts sort of opens up and in the afternoon, groups of professors can come and have a beer with students and the economics department came, and Julia and I had a discussion with Barbara Craig, who is the chair of the Oberlin economics department, who we've talked about before. Um, and she told this story about being in high school and going to a meeting for Yale. She was interested in being an undergraduate, and it was – they had just recently
1: let in women,
0: I think she was saying. And
1: – no? I thought it was for a graduate program Oh, maybe in it economics. was for a graduate program. That makes
0: a lot of sense. Yeah, I
1: think it was for a graduate program in economics. But the story still stands.
0: So Yeah, right. So the story still stands. So she walked into the room and basically the guy running it said, are you sure you're in the right place? And this is a trope that has happened to women all throughout time. But, and I think I was sort of saying this earlier, that I think that women in economics have to be a little fiercer. But I think that's a great example that we talk about PC culture And I think that the people that push back against this politically correct culture are saying that it's not actually achieving anything, it's not actually changing anything. But I would argue that those kind of aggressions, i I would hesitate to even call that a microaggression, that story about Professor Craig and Yale. That is just a full-on aggression. That those things discourage women and people of color from being in economics. And that they may seem like they're just a way of talking, but they make people feel in a certain way that has crafted... Uh, this discipline to be extremely white and extremely male.
1: Yeah, and and as we're getting at on this show, it's also led to the dominant field of economics being really about certain interests and not yeah. not being representative, not being accurate all the time and putting up this facade of accuracy. And I think that it's just like so connected to masculinity in this way that I can't quite... Absolutely. I, yeah, I can't quite say... Explain out loud But I just feel Like I see it You know Absolutely Woo
0: We are really Getting into it tonight
1: Yeah I guess we should Wrap up But this has been A really fun time Thank you guys All for listening
0: Yeah Hopefully next week I think we'll do Feminist economics The next time we record Which
1: we're gonna get Fiery Oh yes
0: That (laughs) is truly One of our favorites So stay tuned And join us next time On Facebook Talk Talk Money. Money